Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Well, welcome over to Product. Today, I'm here with Ryan Singer, who's the head of product strategy at Basecamp and an author of a nice book on product management. Ryan, great to have you here. Why don't you start this by giving us a little overview of your background? Hey, Eric, thanks for having me back. My background is I started off doing UI design and web design early in my career in the in late 90s, early 2000s. I joined uh, Basecamp, then called 37 Signals, back in 2003, and kind of worked my way through different levels of the software stack from doing UI to learning programming to working on how design and programming combine to build working software to getting more into sort of questions of business and strategy. And today I'm, I'm still at Basecamp and it's been 16 years and I'm uh, doing my best to understand kind of what's important to customers and what do we need to focus on in terms of making Basecamp more useful for people and then also translating that into projects. And so the book that I put out called Shape Up also describes a lot of the methods and techniques that I've been involved with kind of honing here at Basecamp over the years to get us from a raw idea or a suggestion or a hunch to an actionable project that we can actually expect to ship in a, in a reasonable period of time. And that's something that I think is kind of a specialty of ours, that we've been able to ship projects over and over and over again on time in a way that we expect and uh, I'm learning more and more that that's actually something people struggle with. So uh, put the book out there in order to help people do better in that area. Yeah, absolutely. It's an area people struggle. And we last spoke in August 2018. So I guess one of the big things you've been up to is this book, right? What else? What else has gone on in the last year and a half or so? Yeah, so the book has been a, a, a big thing over the last year and a half. I mean, uh, it started off with Jason pulling me into a room and saying, hey, I think it's time for you to write a book about this. And I had no idea how to go about that. So there were a lot of stages of learning and prototyping. Like I held a workshop in Chicago to first sort of prototype the material and then uh, went through a lot of phases of sort of learning how the heck to write a book. <laughs> but we got through it. And now it's also a really interesting time at Basecamp. We have a new product coming out that Jason and David just started to tease. It's called Hey, and it is related to email. And that's going to be coming out at the end of April. And I'm already working on uh, Basecamp 4 now, doing the very sort of early stages of shaping that. So that's really exciting. That is exciting. So tell me a little bit about Hey. I'm, I'm going to leave that to, uh, to the teaser website for now and for Jason and David to start to trickle that out. They're just starting to share about that. So that's going to, that's going to be coming out over the next month, a little bit more detail about, about what's happening there. And the teaser website's where for our listeners? That's at Hey.com. H-E-Y.com. Okay, H-E-Y. There we yep. go. Just so everyone knows that it's not what cows eat. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. It's not It's not what cows eat. It's how humans greet. <laughs> Sounds awesome. Uh, so talk to me about your latest book, you know, Shape Up, or your first book, Shape Up. Yeah, so um, Shape Up is tracing the the path that we go through from customers asking us to do something or someone internally having an idea for what we should build next to actually turning that into a project and shipping it. We've seen 
especially as I talk to other friends and peers in the industry, that there's a, a few struggles that come up very often in, in software teams and product teams. One struggle, of course, is just actually shipping things. There's this feeling that when we were really small in the early days of a startup, that there was you know maybe three or four of us and and we were able to just build something and put it out there and build something and put it out there. And now that we're starting to grow or the business has gotten bigger or there's more people around, why is it always sort of this never feeling like the projects are never ending, right? And why is it so difficult to get to the finish line? That's one piece. Another big piece of it is a lot of people who are responsible for leadership in product. So whether that's still the founder or a product manager type person or a more senior designer, those people who are trying to lead the product get into situations where they feel like they basically don't have any time to think. They're so busy in meetings and kind of managing the minutia of trying to get work done day after day after day, that it's really hard for them to pull their heads up and look at the bigger vision and think strategically about where the product should go. And a lot of that has to do actually with the way that the teams are working and the way that the, that the teams are structured. And so uh, one thing that we do in ShapeUp is show how we actually give a lot more of the decision-making to the teams and give more autonomy to the teams so that management isn't micromanaging day after day and spending so much time in meetings. And it's a little bit counterintuitive, but actually part of the way that we give the teams more autonomy is actually by doing more design work upfront. But at the same time, we're not doing design work down in the weeds. We're doing design work at a higher level that's a bit more abstract, where we are outlining sort of the most important boundaries of the work. And by really clarifying the boundaries and the expectations and what's important and what's not, and what are the key elements of the solution that need to be there for us to trust that this thing is going to work, that we call that shaping. And this early design work that happens at a more senior level actually allows us to pass the work on to a team and then give them way more latitude to work out all the internals and the details of the project, but still with a clear sense of where the project is supposed to go and where it ends. So let's talk a little bit more about that shaping process, that, that pre-work that you do on projects before you consider them you know, ready to schedule, right? Talk to me about that and maybe touch on you know, this concept you have in your book about breadboarding, you know, which as an engineer I'm familiar with from way back in the day, <laughs> you know, fat marker sketching, right? Talk to me about all of that. Kind of threw a lot at you, but I'm sure you can run with it. Yeah, well, you know, very often what happens is we start to, to work on a project and we have to figure out what, what is it going to be, right? And so we start to do some early definition work on it. And very often teams err on one of two extremes. Either they're much too concrete. And what happens is you go to the whiteboard and you start sketching a, basically a wireframe in front of everybody, or you, you create some wireframes at your own desk and some software and then share it with people. And what happens is if you start with the wireframe, then you have all of these very specific decisions that are getting made way too early up front. So you put the sidebar on the left and then you put the, you know, some uh, affordances in the UI, they get dumped in the sidebar on the left. And now no matter what happens, every sketch that ever follows in the future of the project is always going to have that sidebar on the left just because somebody drew it there on the first day. You know? So what happens is you get locked into these, these decisions that actually weren't the important things. You know, whether it's a sidebar or not, or whether the sidebar's on the left or the right or whatever, that's not the most important early decision. So that's one thing where we start too concrete and then we kind of box ourselves in. The other extreme 
is somebody writes a story or writes a card somewhere and it just says, you know, build a calendar or add a recurrence option to tasks, you know? And then now you just have a few words that describe the project and that's too abstract. So now it's not easy to set expectations for what is the team actually supposed to do? How do they know when to stop? How do they make trade-offs? How is this thing going to get done within the amount of time that we want it to get done? So we need a way to define the work and describe what the work is without getting so far down into the weeds and at the same time without being up in the clouds. And so breadboarding and fat marker sketches are two techniques that we use to do that. When we're first shaping the work, we do this with kind of a sort of a closed door situation. We've got one or two, maybe three people, but you know, really one or two is the sweet spot with the door closed who have a lot of shared context, who are a bit more senior and can think about the user facing aspect, but also have a sense for what's important in terms of priority and also a little bit of a sense of what's technically possible. And we're sketching on a whiteboard together. And what breadboarding allows us to do is draw the key places that we're going to navigate through the key affordances, you know, like the buttons or the, the things that are going to appear on the screen and, and how you're going to move through this process, but in a way that's really, really fast to draw. And we're, we're not actually drawing out the buttons and the layouts and the sidebar and it's on the left or it's on the right. We're actually just writing words. So it's, it's like a really fast shorthand that allows us to quickly get an idea out of our head and put it in front of ourselves and say, okay, what if we went to the invoice screen and from the invoice screen, we had a new customer option and from new customer, you went here. And then from there, we had the option to set up the ACH transfer or whatever, you know, like, and just by writing the words of what goes where and how do we move from here to there, we can really quickly get to a place where we understand the concept, but we haven't gone to this unnecessary level of, of visual design uh, too early. So that's breadboarding. And like you said at the beginning, it, it's inspired by electrical engineering. You know, when you do a breadboard in electrical engineering, you have this sort of piece of plastic in front of you and it has a lot of places where you can connect wires between plus and minus and you can connect different components, but you're just wiring things together. You're not making decisions about the enclosure and the chassis and whether the, the dial or the, the on-off switch is going to be five millimeters from here or 10 millimeters or, or whatever. You're not making all those, those fine decisions about the sort of the industrial design. It's more about the connectivity of the components and what needs to plug into what for this thing to work and how it's going to work. So that's, that's the breadboarding. And then the fat marker sketching is where sometimes an idea is a bit more visual or we see a picture in our head. So how do we at least communicate an idea again, without going too far into concreteness and there we use a really fat tipped marker or, uh, you know, if we're on the iPad, we set the radius of the pen tip to be much, much bigger. And we draw in a very, very fast, messy way, just the, the quick relationship between a few elements like that. Okay, we can have a header here and under that the list is going to appear. And then if you click the list item, it's going to expand like this, right? And we can express a visual idea, but in a way that is way lower fidelity than what a lot of teams are doing. And so we're encouraging a level of roughness and a level of abstraction so that we design at the right level of abstraction and the right level of detail at the right phase of the work. 
And I gather, you know, to talk about fat markering for a second or fat marker sketching, you're making it fat just so that there's no ability even to go to that level of, of granularity, so to speak, right? Yeah, we're kind of, we're trying to, we're trying to obstruct ourselves from getting too detailed, right? We're trying to just put that fat marker in our hand and then we can only go so far, you know, with how much we can draw. We're just putting a limitation in our own hands there. Yeah, I think that that's great because it physically kind of gives you that constraint too, along with, you know, the verbal constraint about what you're supposed to be drawing. You have that physical constraint of it's just, it's hard to do too much detail, right? Yes. And then, so you you talked about staffing for this, you know, like how you do it. And you talked about one or two, ideally, maybe three, you know, what, what is perfect? Like, one, two people, how do they interact? Why do you have one versus two? You know, what's the ideal team makeup for being able to work through this? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. So different types, when I was trying to figure out how to describe, you know, the process that we go through and, and how we do product development and product design, I was meeting with my good friend and mentor, Bob Mesta, and he has a really interesting history. He spent some time in Japan and learned from Genichi Taguchi, who was one of the main forces behind the Japanese auto revolution and the quality revolution that happened in Japan. And Taguchi taught him that if you want to understand a system, that you need to actually follow how material moves through the system. And so he was saying, if you want to understand the way that a, that a car works and that an engine works, imagine yourself as a drop of gasoline. You know, you go through the tank and then you go through all these different stages and through different pieces of machinery and you get lit on fire and you explode and, you know, all kinds of things happen to you. And by following that through time, then you can understand how the system works. And the drop of gasoline in shape up is the raw idea. So how do we go from, you know, you, you could have a room of 10 people sitting around at lunch and then somebody starts saying, hey, I talked to a customer today and they were complaining about how they couldn't set up a recurring event and they, they did this and they tried that. And then all of a sudden everybody's saying, oh yeah, we could do this. And how about we do that? And I saw that, you know, Apple did it this way when in their calendar app and all kinds of ideas are getting thrown around, right? And so you're getting a lot of input and you're, you're, a, a lot of ideas are in the air. But now if you want to make decisions and you want to make trade-offs, you have to dig deeper and you need to have an atmosphere where you have more context, more shared knowledge, and more concentration. So if you want to take this forward and get this to the point where it's a project, now you need to take all that input and you need to have a much, much smaller session. So we go from sort of an open field of suggestions and brainstorming to one or two people in a room who are doing the so-called shaping work. And the shaping work is where we're trying to see, can we get this thing to an idea and a concept that we actually think we could be confident in that if we were to allocate time and people to this, that they would be able to build it out and they wouldn't get lost or it wouldn't sort of spiral out of control, but we could really see the end of it and be confident that they would be able to, to execute it. So the shaping requires actually a bit of experience and it's kind of an integrative role where we can do some design and we can do some concepting we have enough of a sense of what's technically possible and we can make some judgments about what's valuable business-wise. I mean, any type of an idea that comes up, whether it's recurring tasks or building a calendar or changing the way the permissions work in some piece of the app, whatever it is, there's always a version of it that you could spend a year building. There's a version of it that you could spend six months building and there's a version of it you could spend six weeks or less building. And it's all a question of what are the trade-offs that you're going to make and how are you going to 
make judgments about what has to be there versus what is a nice to have. And those are hard decisions and they require a lot of context and you have to really say no. And big groups are bad at saying no. (laughs) You know, you can't get 20 people together in a room and get them to agree on what not to do. But if you get one or two people who have a lot of shared context and and enough experience together, then they can make some trade-offs. So we get to a point where we get a couple people in a room and we use very fast moving techniques like breadboarding or fat marker sketching to explore the space of possibilities. And at the same time, we're setting some boundaries for ourselves. You know, we talk in the book about, we don't want to set estimates. An estimate is where you start with a design. You say, how long is it going to take? Instead, we have appetites. Our appetite is how much time do we want to spend on this design? How much design, what's the constraint that we're going to set that this design can't take more than this number of weeks to implement? So instead of going from a design to a number, we go from a number to a design. So we're going to have this this appetite and we're going to be exploring, can we come up with some concept that we think is actually doable and that we understand in that amount of time that fits that appetite? So that's the sort of shaping process. And then what's going to come out of that shaping process is some kind of a viable project idea, or maybe not. Maybe we don't come up with anything and we just throw it away. But hopefully we come up with a viable idea that has a clear shape, that has a a defined appetite. And now we can take this idea and say, look, we think this is worth doing. We think that we can do it in, let's say, six weeks. Here's the sort of main skeleton of how it's going to work, what we shaped, sort of how the hip bone connects to the leg bone and proving how we think it's going to work and how it's going to be viable. And we take that to the betting table. And the betting table is going to be maybe different people, maybe, but it's people who are in a position to actually make decisions about who works on what, when. So it's a question of resource allocation. It's a question of scheduling. It's a question of actually using what we have and making a commitment. And then from the betting table, that's in our case, that's generally something like two to four people. It's, it's Jason and David. And then depending on which product there may be myself or someone else who's sitting with them to help make those decisions. Of course, the last word falls on Jason and David. And then the last sort of phase of this is that if we do choose to bet on a project that was shaped, then a team can take that on. And for us, the ideal team size is three. That's going to be a designer and, and two programmers. And of course, if, if it's a smaller project, sometimes we can manage just one designer and one programmer, but that's really, really the sweet spot is a designer and two programmers. And we're going to give them the shaped work. They have all the, the outline of the work is clear. The appetite is clear. The expectations are clear. And then they have all the latitude and the freedom that they need to self-manage and make all the many, many, many thousands of decisions that have to be made about the final form and how all the little pieces are going to work together to, to actually make this thing work. So that's, that's sort of a high level picture of, of sort of the different phases that the work goes through and, and the team sizes. Yeah. I think that that's very, that's very helpful. And the, the team size and the shaping process you mentioned is like one or two usually, is it one or is it two? Is it, is there an ideal number? Yeah. So shaping can happen. Um, so for example, I'm working on some ideas for Basecamp 4 right now, and I'm sitting alone with my iPad doing the shaping work on those, but I'm not going to get completely to the end of that because what's going to happen is I'm going to get to a point where I say, okay, here's what I think is a viable way to handle this, this new feature that we want to do. And I think I can see the outlines of this and here's what I've shaped up, but I, I'm not going to just go straight from that to 
putting that into a pitch and then bringing that to Jason and saying, here's what I think we should do. I'm going to, at some point, probably tap the shoulder of uh, like Jeff, who is uh, one of our most senior technical people. And I'm going to walk him through the idea and we'll have a call together. I'll walk him through the idea and he'll push back on me with his sort he'll give me sort of a reality check from the deeper knowledge he has about how things are wired together in the back end. So there might be something that I don't know about or that I misunderstood. And he's going to say, oh, you know, actually it doesn't work like that. And we can't just follow that assumption that if you click over there, that we can reuse that model from the back end or whatever. And then there might be cases where he looks at what I describe and he says, oh, that seems perfectly fine, but let's check. And then he might walk away and do spend three or four hours doing a quick spike to validate that the way we think things can wire together is indeed how they can wire together. And if we pull the string of what's connected to what in the current back end of the system, that we're not going to just keep pulling it and end up on some, you know, super long yak shave where we have to keep changing, you know, where we find that there's too many interdependencies or things that are tangled together. So that's one type of thing where I might shape something alone and then I might rely on, on somebody who has more technical expertise than me to find problems in it or to troubleshoot it so that, because I don't want it. A lot of this is about a sort of risk aversion or just dealing with risk. I don't want to take a concept that looks really great from the user standpoint. We don't want to bet on it, give it to a team and then have them trip up on it and find out that it's actually, there's a whole bunch of tangled interdependencies where they would have to change a bunch of other parts of the system in order to make this work, right? Or that the back end doesn't work the way that we thought it did. So that's one piece of it. Another piece of it is I might be struggling to get to a place where I have a shaped concept that feels simple enough or is I can't seem to to get the scope small enough. You know, it starts to get too complicated. And I might think, you know what, I need to talk this through with Jason or vice versa. And then we can have a call together and say, hey, look, this is what I'm thinking. And then we could have a kind of a really intensive session where he says, oh, but you know, I, I tried this other app the other day and you know, it gave me this idea, like maybe we don't even need that. Like, what if we had this other approach to it? You know what I mean? And and you you can have an entirely different concept out of that. So that's the type of, you know, it's very intense collaboration that's based around problem solving, very specific concept that we're trying to get to, right? So it can be one person, it can be two people, but it's very close, sort of intimate work. That's what the shaping work looks like. Yeah. So, I mean, you can think about it as like you're owning this problem statement. You, and in your case, you guys are working off of appetites of generally six weeks or small batches of one mm-hmm. or two, right? Mm-hmm. And then you're going through and working with different experts to validate some of the solution before you package it all up in a pitch. Is that, is that a good way to think about yes, it? Yes, exactly. The whole thing here is we don't want to just say, hey, yeah, let's build this new whatever recurring task feature and just give it to a team and say, build recurring tasks, because that's just too risky. Nobody's going to know exactly what that means. Nobody's going to know when to stop. And it's going to be very easy for that to spiral out of control and not ship at the end of the six weeks or whatever the time is that we allot for it. If we want to be sure that the work that we schedule, the work that we bet on is going to ship in the amount of time that we want it to ship in, we have to do more work up front. We have to be clearer about what the specific approach is for how we're going to solve this from a high level. We need to have some sort of an idea of what the solution is, and we need to have some knowledge of how the main pieces of the backend fit together 
and whether that's realistic given the state of the current system of how it works. We've got to actually look at that and look at the specifics of it before we give the work to the team. What's happening very often in most other software companies that I'm seeing is they have something in a backlog. It's a short description of a problem statement or a story or something like that. And then it's given to a team and the team is now under deadline to not only build it, but also do the discovery and figure out what the right approach is and what the right solution is. Discovery and trying to figure out how do I even tackle this problem, that type of work doesn't make sense under deadline because the probability distribution is just way too wide. There's just way too many possibilities that can happen. You know, you've got to narrow the thing down and have a more specific idea of what you're doing. That's what we call shaping before you put it under deadline, before you have that clock ticking and all that pressure on everybody. And if you do that work up front and you eliminate some of those risks and you clarify what the approach is, then you're enabling the team to be way more successful under that deadline. And they can use that deadline productively to make trade-offs inside the bounds of, of what's been shaped. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that makes a lot of sense, right? And at the same time, you're you're addressing, I think you, you call them rabbit holes. I think we all know what they are, right? This, yeah. This places where you could get lost. Uh, and you're also addressing those you know, areas that you're not going to address, like specifically saying these are not areas we're going to go down uh, or address in, in this you know, particular you know, solution set that we have this six-week project or cycle for. Yeah. I mean, every time you, you put an idea on the table, everybody who's looking at that idea can come up with ways to make it quote unquote better. You know, like, well, what if we all, we should add this and we should add that and we should also do this and it could also do that. Of course, everything's going to be better if you just keep adding more to it. But the name of the game isn't adding things to make it better. The name of the game is making trade-offs to get it done. So we need to make these judgment calls about what's good enough and where can we stop. And that's a very different conversation than, oh, we could also do this and we could also do that and we could also do this. So one thing that has to come up or a question you must get a lot is why six weeks, right? Why do you pick, you know, an appetite of six weeks or a cycle time of six weeks? And, and that's for, you know, kind of your, I think you describe them as big batches, right? You have the, the smaller things that might be one or two and, and kind of grouped together to fill out a six-week cycle. But why six weeks? What's the magic of six weeks? So I actually see it as a kind of a physical fact. Sometimes we call it the, the time horizon. If I'm just honest with myself based on my experience, I can't see further than six weeks away. I just can't see further than that. If I try and define some work that's going to be 12 weeks long or 18 weeks long, I can't feel that. I can't, I can't understand that. And I know that what's going to happen is the team is going to sort of flounder around, kind of pecking at this and pecking at that and, and doing we you know whatever seems reasonable, but the deadline isn't going to feel real. And then there's going to come a point where you're, you know, more like six weeks away, where you start to say like, oh, I, the end is coming. Like I can feel that deadline starting to loom and we got to make some choices here. And so what we want is we want to have that feeling of like, I can see the end. I can see that it's, it's, not, it's not over the horizon, but I can see that at the far end of my vision that like the end of the project is out there and I need to make some decisions today in order to be in a position for this thing to actually ship at the end. And the thing is, if we're shorter, if we're only working two weeks at a time, then of course, we're not looking out ahead, we're looking down at our feet. 
right? We could get a short, a very, very short piece of work done, but we can't actually build a new feature in six weeks, in two weeks. We can't get a new meaningful chunk of functionality done in two weeks. And so it needs to be longer than that. But if we try and say it's six months, then nobody can feel the end coming and nobody can make those trade-offs. They don't have the pressure coming from that wall of the deadline pushing back, that back pressure. But around six weeks, we can see the end from the beginning and it's enough time to get something accomplished and we can feel that back pressure to help us make trade-offs. So that seems to be sort of the the natural unit uh, based on on, on our experience of, of what we can work with Okay. I, I think that makes sense. I mean, I definitely get the, you need enough time to get something done, but you don't need a ton of time that it feels like there's time to meander around too much, right? That there's. Yeah. If it's, if it's too deadline. long, you, if it's too long, you can't make decisions because you can't see the end from the beginning. And the other thing is if it's too long, you also are taking on too much risk, you know, because the thing that we want to do might go sideways. It might not turn out to, to be what we wanted. We might encounter unexpected difficulties with it. We have this thing that in the book, I call it the circuit breaker, which is the notion that, you know, we make a bet and we bet the six weeks to do something. And if it goes wrong, then we just cancel it. At the end of the six weeks, if it doesn't ship, we don't reinvest automatically. We don't extend it automatically. We don't just keep throwing more time on it, at it. We say, look, that didn't work. Something went wrong. We're going to go do something else. And the fact that it's kind of only six weeks which from a macro planning standpoint is not a big period of time. It actually gives us a lot of, um, it's a really good risk management strategy because it means if something blows up, it's a local blow up. It's not a global blow up. It doesn't ruin our quarter. It doesn't ruin our year. It's just six weeks where something didn't go right. And now we can do something else in the next six weeks. Or maybe, maybe the original project is going perfectly and everything is going just right, but something new that is either the most genius idea we've ever had or a crisis we didn't expect comes up while we're building that project. And if at most the next project is six weeks away, that means that we can change course and we can act on that. So it gives us more optionality as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So we covered this whole kind of shaping process that leads to a pitch, right? Can you... uh, Jen, step us through really quickly the summary of that, like the different components of the process and, and what's part of the pitch? Yeah, basically the pitch is the kind of solid presentation of the shaped work. And it's basically like, what do we need to see and what do we need to know in order to make a bet on this? And then for the team to have enough knowledge to take that bet forward and, and implement it. And so we're, we need to have a clear statement of sort of what the actual problem is independent of the solution. So very often when people want to build something, they just jump straight to the solution and they say, so we're going to build recurring tasks and there's going to be a new button here underneath the task. And when you click the button, this is what's going to happen. And so that's what we want to build. You want to go do it, right? This is what we all do all the time, right? We just go jump to the solution. The problem is if we just describe the solution, we don't have any criteria to judge the fit. How do we know if that's the right solution? So we say, okay, well, we said we were going to build a button. So we built the button. So we succeeded. No. How do we know if that's actually the thing that's the right thing to build? So we need to have some sort of a a statement of what are we trying to solve? What's wrong with the status quo? What's our diagnosis of customers are asking for this? And this is what we think they're actually asking for, you know? So some statement of the problem that's independent of the solution. So we've got problem and we've got solution. And the solution is, is going to be sketched out. 
again, at the right level of fidelity, at the right level of abstraction. So we're going to be seeing breadboarding or fat marker sketches. We're not going to be looking at, at wireframes and high fidelity mockups, but we're going to see enough to say, okay, there's going to be an option here and we could go from here to there. And then you'll see these options. And if you choose this, it takes you there so that you can see the flow of the main points of the solution, the main elements of the solution. And then we also need to say what our appetite is. If we say that this is the solution we came up with and it's for a two week project versus a six week project, there's going to be a lot of corners that had to be cut to get that down to a two week size. And if the appetite that you have is going to help everybody to understand the trade-offs that you made. So, I mean, the, the, the example I use in the book is just like, if you say, look, let's get dinner and you say, well, what's the best dinner? Okay. A hot dog is not the best dinner. Maybe a steak dinner would be a better evening out. Right. But if, if the constraint is that we only have 10 minutes, then the hot dog is, is everyone says, of course, the hot dog is the perfect option. Right. So the constraints completely change your judgment. So if, if you're writing the pitch and you've come up with a really cut down bare bones version of this feature, but it's because strategically you've decided that this thing is only worth two weeks of time, then everybody's going to say, oh, of course, that stripped down version makes sense, right? But if you don't specify that appetite, then everybody's going to say, well, why, you know, we can all come up with a much better version than that, Right. So that's really important. So you've got the problem, you've got the outlines of the solution, you've got the appetite made explicit. And then the last couple of things is that we need to identify any rabbit holes. So what are the pieces of the design that could get really gnarly or where there could be way too many possibilities for how to do it, where we're making kind of, we're kind of making a call up front about how to avoid falling into that rabbit hole. Or maybe there's an element of the uh, technical underpinnings that we have to call out so that it doesn't spiral out of control. So those are things that we address. And then also the no-goes, the things that we're not doing. So we might be uh, building, for example, we built this feature for grouping to-dos into groups. And we said, okay, we're not going to allow you to, we're not gonna say that we have to have color coding of these groupings, even though we talked about that a few times, because we might not get this done if we say that has to happen. So there's certain things that we can call out and say, it's okay if this doesn't get done, it's okay if we leave this out. And that sort of frees the team up to focus on the things that are most important. And then this all leads to this whole betting table, right? This betting process. Why betting? Why not planning? Talk to me about how you approach this betting table and this betting process. Yeah. So the reason that we use the term bet is because that's what it is. And we're trying to be more honest with ourselves. And we're trying to use a language that reflects the reality of the situation we're in. What we're really doing is we're taking risks. When we allocate resources, when we commit time to things, we're taking a risk. We're saying, look, we think that if we spend this time, it's going to be a good way to spend the time and we're going to get something good out of it. And so what we're really doing is we're making a bet. And and if we talk too much about planning and scheduling, that kind of uses the language of certainty. And it creates a false sense that, we know what's going to happen and we can see the future and we can't. So by talking about betting, we can acknowledge some things. So when you make a bet, you bet a certain amount, you know? So if, if you say, I'm going to bet $10 that it starts to rain, you know, after 5 p.m., not before 5 p.m. today, right? I might win the bet or I might lose the bet, but I know that I'm not going to lose more than the amount that I bet. 
right? And what happens so often is when people plan projects, they say, this is, okay, this is what we want to do. And we're going to build this feature. And we estimate that it's going to take six weeks. And so let's go ahead and start. And then what happens is the reality turns out to be different. It takes longer than the six weeks. And now it's taken 12 weeks, 18 weeks, and on and on and on. And how did you end up spending more than you wanted to spend, right? So by talking about a bet, what we're saying is, this feature, this piece of the product, this change is worth something to us based on the payout we think we're going to get. If we win this bet, then there's something that we're going to get that we think is valuable. But it doesn't mean that like it's, it's worth whatever it takes, right? Because there's a, there's a whole bunch of other things that we want to do over the next few months. There's a whole bunch of other things that are going to be more important to us strategically. But if we say this project is worth two weeks or this project is worth six weeks, we want to bet six weeks. And if the project takes more than that, then we're, gonna, we're not going to spend more than that because it wasn't worth it. It, it doesn't deserve that. So that's that circuit breaker working for us. So we want to cap the downside. And I was going to say you have exceptions to that rule, but they're rare, right? Yeah. Well, so we have cases where the project doesn't ship and then we say, we might choose to reinvest and spend more time. But the difference is then we're making a new bet. So if a project does run over and we're at the end of the six weeks and it didn't ship, now what we do is we don't just say, okay, well, well, let's just keep working at it. No, what we do is we come back to the betting table and we say, this thing isn't done. These are the other things that we might want to do. But if we want to, we could continue working on the thing that didn't finish. But if we're going to continue working on it, we should actually shape what we're going to bet on. So we're not just going to give more time because the thing is something went wrong. We thought it was going to get done in a certain amount of time. It didn't get done in that amount of time. So what did we miss? Was there some complexity that we couldn't foresee? You know, it, did something turn out to be different than what we thought? So if the original concept didn't pan out the way that we thought, maybe we need to adjust the concept. So it could happen that we actually need to come up with a new approach for how we're going to finish building this thing or we need to come up with a different design, or we have to come up with a different technical solution. So it may be that actually this has to go back into the realm of shaping, and we should just do some other work until we get to a point where we feel like we have more clarity about what is going to be an approach to get this thing done so that if we do spend the more time on it, that we can be more confident, that we're not just throwing good money after bad. Yeah, and this so this will be a big change for people who've come from you know, fixed scopes and variable times, right? Where they're, we're providing an estimate up front and just saying, we're going to do these eight things and it's going to be done, I think in 12 weeks, give or take. <laughs> you know, now you're moving to, hey, six weeks, scope is variable. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. The fixed time and the variable scope is a huge part of all of this. And, and the fixed time is another big piece of why we talk about betting. Another aspect of, of this sort of the word bet is this notion that you're making a commitment. You know, if you break, if you somehow don't follow through on the bet, then you, you break trust, you damage your reputation, you, you're not going to be able to bet again because no one's going to believe you, you know. So if we say that we're going to spend six weeks on something, then it also means that betting the six weeks means we actually make the commitment and we follow through on the commitment. And what that means in the context of a product team is that we don't pull them away to do something else. We don't allow anybody else to pull them away and we don't interrupt them. So we shape the work. We say, this is worth the six weeks. 
and we, we put together the team of three that's going to do it. And then we leave them alone. We don't say, Hey, can you just, just this one thing came up and this customer needs it. No, like we said six weeks, that's the bet that we made and we're going to honor it. And it's by honoring that bet and giving the team the unbroken, uninterrupted time to completely dedicate themselves to solving that one thing for that six weeks. That's how we set ourselves up for success to actually ship the thing at the end of that time. And if we're interrupting it or we're pulling them away to do other things, then we're just going against our own intentions, you know? And so we need to be more, on the one hand, conscious of the risks. So that's why the circuit breaker's there. And at the same time, we need to be more deliberate about how we spend our time. And so that's why the commitment is there and the uninterrupted time is there. Awesome. So one, one interesting thing about your process, right, when you're going through and you're putting these bets together, you're talking about the team that this is going to be handed over to. And it's one designer and one to two engineers. That's, I would guess, unusual as far as the, the small number of engineers and the ratio of design to engineering on a team, right? So talk to me about why that works for you and why you think that's better. That's an interesting question. So we actually, there, it's not so many programmers to just have two programmers per team compared to what you see at some other companies. And part of that has to do with the technical decisions that we've made. The fact that we are building in Rails and that we're actually doing a, a lot of the, a lot of what's happening is, is still server side and we're sending HTML over the wire and we're not doing this kind of single page app stuff where it's all a bunch of JavaScript on the client side. This is actually a huge productivity boost. And I predict that we're going to be seeing that a lot of this complexity that people are taking on with these single page apps and a lot of JavaScript and React and stuff like that, it's actually making it harder for people to, to develop software. And it's adding a lot of complexity and it's taking more time. What happens is the more layers you have on the client side, the more you push designers away from the process. Because now a designer can't just create some HTML and create some CSS and have something that works. Now they have to work in this complex front end layer. So what you end up with is you end up with designers who aren't very technical, who are creating high fidelity mockups. They're passing those over to front end engineers who are different than back-end engineers because there's so much complexity that has to get managed on the front-end now. And then that front-end engineering has to get wired into some back-end and you get a much longer chain of work and then more people involved. Because the majority of what we're doing is HTML over the wire, it means that life is simpler. It's just much simpler. The designers can work straight in the app. So our designers are doing not just, of course, the visual work of what's it supposed to look like, but they're actually in there doing HTML and CSS. And they're not only in there doing that, but they're actually putting that HTML and CSS directly in the app, in the templates, in the views of the app. And they're able to sort of sprinkle in a little bit of Ruby here and there. And then the working relationship between the designer and the programmer is much tighter. And the loop is much smaller. There's fewer layers of translation happening there. So I actually think that this is a... Um, Anybody who, who chooses an architecture that's HTML over the wire instead of the single page app stuff is giving themselves a massive productivity advantage. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I can buy into that. So, you know, as we're talking about, you know, the betting table, people moving forward on a pitch, 
One of the really powerful things I think about your book is this concept now that you're assigning projects over tasks, right? You're not saying, hey, here's a painting and you're each going to paint one little strip of it, but you're, mm. you're handing over the whole project as opposed to, you know, assigning someone as a taskmaster that splits up those tasks. Yeah, this comes back to, this is a question of what knowledge do we have at what time? When we first start a project, we can figure out kind of what the big macro pieces of the solution are, right? So if we're going to do a, like the to-do groups feature, we needed to have a basic idea of how we're going to group the to-dos together into these subgroups and how is there going to be some sort of a headline to name the group and how do you create a group? There's certain mechanics that we have to work out in advance, but these are the macro things. These are the parts of the work that we've shaped. When it comes to all the micro work, you just can't see it up front. You don't know what all the little things are that you have to do up front. And if you try and make a list of these are all the things that we're going to have to do, then it's just going to blow up. It's not going to be complete. It's not going to reflect the actual work. You find out what the real work is when you get your hands dirty, especially if you're working in some existing system. Like you need to open the hood and actually start to tug on the wires and tug on the cables and say, oh, this actually connects over to that. And if I do this, then I can't also do that. And you don't know until you start to actually get your hands dirty and start to do the work. So we could try you know, to specify all the tasks up front, but we're just going to be wrong. So why bother? You know, it's much better and it's much more aligned with the reality of the situation to say to the teams, look, you know, from the shaped work, what the high level things are that this thing has to do, you know, better. And you're going to find out by trying to build it, what actually needs to get done down at the micro level. So it's much more reasonable just to say, look, get in there and spike some ideas and figure out what you need to do. So this is the reality of work that we, there's the tasks that we imagine we have to do. And then there's the real work that we discover we have to do. And the bulk of any software project is the discovered tasks. So when it comes to task management and task tracking and all that stuff that happens inside of a project, we really view it it's not a question of planning, but a question of capturing. The team is going to bump into things that they discover they have to do. You go in and you open up this piece of the model code and you realize like, oh, I didn't realize that that, that was sharing this same library that or the same sort of uh, concern that this other model shares. And so we can't just change this because it's going to also affect the other one. So we have to split this off first, right? There's all this, these kind of things that you just bump into and discover. So you learn something about what you have to do. Then you capture that so that you don't lose track of it. And now you've discovered a piece of work, you created to do for that. And now that doesn't get lost and it's communicated that this needs to get handled. That's the process of sort of how the work gets done. So the team are, the actual people doing the work are the ones who are gonna figure out what the tasks are. And then also they are going to be able to make the calls as they go about what are the things that they're bumping into that absolutely must be done? And what are the things that they're bumping into that are kind of ideas or enhancements or improvements that could be flagged as a nice to have? And then we have a convention for that. So anything they bump into where they're like, uh, this piece of the controller code is kind of gnarly. We should probably refactor that. 
And they could say to themselves, well, do we have to do that in order for this thing to ship? Or is that something that would be nice to do because we identify would be a good cleanup? And if it's a nice to have, then they mark it with a tilde in the front. And that's something that they'll leave until the 11th hour of the project to see if there's time for. And if it's a must have, then they, they know they can see that it's a must have. And it's something that they'll tackle as something that has to get done. Thanks. I mean, we've covered a lot of really good stuff about this shape up and shape up best practices. You know, if, if you're talking to a, a young product leader or someone who's in an organization where the product organization is fairly young, you know, how should they start? How should they best approach some of this? Well, that's an interesting question. So I think the way to start is to clarify the realities of the work, you know, that if you just give a team a few words of what they're supposed to do, then you can't really expect them to deliver on that. But if you shape the work first, then you have clearer expectations. I think being deliberate about who actually gets to decide what we work on is a big challenge for young organizations and young companies. You know, what happens is when you're a new startup and you're two or three people, everything happens ad hoc, everything happens organically. You don't need to have a system and a plan and a structure. You just do stuff, right? And it's when you start to grow and you start to hire people that all of a sudden you have to ask yourself these weird questions of like, how do we make decisions? And you know, like, what's the process that work goes through? You don't have to deal with that until you reach a certain size. But then when you, when you do reach that size, now you have an opportunity to be more deliberate about how you answer those questions. And what a lot of companies are doing and what a lot of product folks are doing is they're erring on the side of being too democratic. That's what I think. I think what's happening is they're saying, okay, we want everyone involved and we want everyone to feel like they have a say. So let's all get in a room and let's talk about what to do next. And what happens is like we talked about before, you can't make tough trade-offs and you can't say no and make the right decisions when you've got a big group of people in a room. Somebody has to take responsibility to say, this is what we're doing and this is what we're not doing. And this is valuable and this is not valuable. And in order to do that, you have to actually know, okay, who gets to decide how we spend our time. So actually, I think that being explicit about this betting table, who makes the bets, who sits at the betting table, and how do we make judgments about what is important and what's not important and how we spend our time, that's really important to clarify that. And then when you have that clarity and you start to make explicit bets, then it brings in all the other questions of, okay, well, what are we going to bet on? So then that, that invites sort of a shaping issue, right? And what are the expectations of like when we make a bet? And then, so this is sort of when we give the, the work to the teams, how do we define what they're going to do and who creates the tasks? And are we, are, are we having some architect person create a whole bunch of tickets for them? Or, or are we going to give them the autonomy to discover what the details are, right? So I think a lot of those kind of flow from being more clear about betting. And it's also important, this thing with betting, because it's the moment when you say, we're going to spend our time on this and not that, and we're going to spend only this much time, that's the moment when you have some strategic clarity. That's the moment when the rubber hits the road or you, know, you put your money where your mouth is in terms of what you actually say your priorities are. I think the other piece of this, in addition to sort of clarifying the betting, is to also look more clearly at the different types of design that have to happen. Designer is, is actually a really fuzzy word. 
And it can mean somebody who puts colors and fonts together in a really beautiful way. It can mean somebody who can figure out an interaction flow so that you can perform a task. And it can also mean somebody who can work out the very high level concept for a viable project that's worth taking on. And I think it's really good to, as an organization starts to grow and as you start to figure out sort of how to lead the product more deliberately, to recognize that the shaping work is different than the execution work when it comes to design. We have some folks here at Basecamp who the level of decision-making that they have to do, all the little decisions from how to structure the HTML and the CSS to how to design the elements on the screen so that it's harmonious to is it going to be compatible across you know mobile versus desktop i mean there's just a million decisions that they have to make and they make those decisions way better than i could and they have they bring a ton of expertise to the table at that level of all those individual things that have to happen and for me as somebody who's doing more shaping i'm not up to date on the latest css technique and i'm not I don't have all of the sort of uh, patterns of how Basecamp 3 is wired together at the top of my mind. But what I do have is I spend a lot of time talking to customers. I spend a lot of time looking at the product at a macro level. And I'm, I'm more sort of familiar with breadboarding and fat marker sketching and kind of looking at a feature from more the standpoint of what does it do and how does it fulfill what we think is important strategically. Like that's where my head is. And, and I have a lot of experience working at that level. And so I'm doing different work with different deliverables, solving different problems with different inputs. And I think it's really good to sort of tease those roles apart and see how, how much expertise goes into both roles. So it's less of a question of like, how come you get to, to decide? And it's less of a sort of a power thing. And it's actually more of a time and knowledge and like different skill set kind of a thing. And that's, I think, something really valuable to start to tease apart in a young organization, sort of who has more of the shaping head and who has more of the execution head and really looking at these as complementary skills. Yeah, a lot of that makes me think about trust too, right? And, and how trust is in the organization and does better product management lead to more trust across teams or do you need that trust across teams to have better product management? And maybe it's a, a virtuous cycle, so to speak there, but I, I think about trust too. It, it totally is. And a lot of this, all aspects of this touch on this issue of trust. If you make a deliberate bet and you say, we're going to have uninterrupted time on this concept and this is what we're going to do. And then at the end of that, we're going to ship it and we don't know what comes next, but we'll talk again in six weeks. And then you ship that. That builds really strong trust that the things that we talk about as, as an organization and the things that we deliver match up versus if you have like a giant backlog and then anytime people can't agree on what to do, you say, well, just put it in the backlog. Then of course there isn't this feeling of like the things that we say we're going to do and the things that we do line up. And of course that affects the morale, right? So the way that we make decisions does definitely affect the sort of feeling of trust that we have in each other. And from an execution level up to a strategic level of, do we actually do the things that we say that we're going to do? Do we stop when we say we're going to stop? You know, and do we revisit things that aren't working when we can all see that they're not working? Those are the kind of things that we want to build in. Yeah, yeah, and that makes a lot of sense, especially in this model, right? It's it's really it's a really important part for this model to work. 
Yeah. And then I think also, you know, the thing between, for example, you know, the ones who are shaping and the ones who are implementing trust is one thing, but I, I like to really also look at it just through the lens of respect. The more that we we see the type of time and energy and knowledge and unique skill sets that go into the different kinds of work, we can see it less as decision-making versus decision-receiving and more as different types of autonomy at different levels of scale. You know, I have a certain type of autonomy when I'm doing shaping, but I'm leaving open a lot of decisions that I'm not the right person to make. And then the people who are doing the implementing, they have that latitude to make a lot of decisions because that was left open to them because they're viewed as the experts, right? And there's other things that aren't open to them because certain boundaries need to be set during the shaping. And we really help each other then by leaving the decisions to the right person at the right time in the right area. So, you know, this leads me into this this topic of hiring, right? What do you look for for product managers inside of the company? I mean, you kind of want to, I think, maybe a a specific skill set, right? And maybe it's two different specific skill sets, depending upon which part of the process they're working more on. Well, here I'll say something difficult to swallow, which is that we don't have product managers. And actually throughout ShapeUp, I acknowledge the fact that there are people who are in a role that's called product management, but I'm not sure what that means, honestly, because if we look at the work that needs to be done, kind of like I said before, if we follow the drop of gasoline and say sort of like, which is what needs to happen for the engine to turn, we need to, somebody has to take a raw idea and turn it into an actionable pitch and that's shaping work. So we need someone to do shaping. Someone has to make bets. So somebody has to be in charge of, you know, this is what we spend time on and this is what we're not spending time on. Someone has to have the authority to make that decision and needs to make that decision. And then people need to do the design and the programming to actually build the thing. As far as I can see from a sort of um, uh, first principles attitude that I like to take, that's the real work. And then when you really do the work at each of those steps, then you can say, okay, we need someone to shape, we need someone to bet, and then the team is autonomous to build. And that's, that's actually, everything's fine. We actually don't need any additional management. And we actually don't have any additional management at Basecamp. We don't have any product managers at Basecamp. And we certainly don't have any project managers. What do you call but, shapers? So here at Basecamp, most of the shaping is done by myself and Jason. And so shaping is a, is a task that we do. You know, my role is sort of a product strategy and Jason's role is of course, like, I mean, technically CEO, but he's sort of the last word on product. And that's where he likes to put a lot of his attention. But of course, his attention is split among a lot of things in that position. So I think it's really a question of these are the things that need to happen. And then how do we create a role so that these different things get covered? And so for some companies that might be product manager, you might say, what what I do, they might call a product manager, you know, someone who really looks at the product from a macro level and tries to shape what to do next. But in other companies, that might be more of a senior designer who's doing that shaping work and who has a close relationship to somebody who's on the betting table. You know, it, it, you have to figure that out case by case. The thing that I think is important to be wary of is that so many product managers are actually project managers. And really what they're doing is they are chasing around the other people who do the work and trying to whip them so that stuff gets done and so that everybody uses every hour 
in a way that pleases the people who are nervous on top that, you know, what got done today, what got done today, what got done today? And how do we get, how do we fit 10 things into, into one slot, right? Everyone is trying to squeeze a whole bunch of work into too little time. And so you need to have someone who becomes basically a professional time manager to try and get all the little Tetris blocks to fit together. And I think a lot of product managers are actually stuck doing that. They're really just doing a lot of time management. And it's because of the fact that explicit betting isn't happening and higher up in the organization. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I would agree with you. I mean, I, I think it's particularly bad when product managers be, you know, turn into project managers. I do look at the role of shaping though as kind of core, you know, should be core of what a product manager does, right? Exactly, typically exactly. But then the question comes up, well, if shaping is really this important thing that needs to happen, then what are the skill sets that you need to bring to the table to do shaping? And, Which is going and, to be and, my next question. Exactly, right? And so what's going to happen is you're going to have a, a certain segment. If we had a bunch of product managers in the room here, some group of them would raise their hand and say, I see myself as someone who has a design background, who's very good at looking at things from the user point of view. And I have a lot of knowledge of how software systems are put together. And I can think like an interaction designer. And yeah, I can do shaping. There's definitely going to be some subset of those product managers who are going to say, that's what I do. But there's going to be a lot of them who don't, you know, and there's no supply chain that delivers product managers to firms with the right skill set. You know, like, how do you become a product manager? What's your education path? Like, wh where does, where do these people come from? That's not something that, that is clear and defined out there in the world. And so you get people in a product management position from all kinds of different backgrounds and for all kinds of reasons. And the ones who are on the track to become product managers often don't know actually what skill set they should be developing to do that. And the people who are creating product management roles inside of firms also don't even know what they're really looking for. All they know is that the work isn't getting done and they need someone to wrangle everybody, you know? So when it comes to shaping, it's fundamentally a, a design role. And it's a design role that is less about the graphic design. It's less about the visual arts and it's more about interaction design. And it's a question of what is the functionality that people need to perform? What's the problem we're trying to solve? And then what are the things that we could do sort of looking at it from the user facing standpoint, what are the main elements of the system we could put together so that this is gonna work? So it's more kind of high level design. So that's the kind of the skill set we would be looking for is someone who, who has a kind of interaction design background, who has experience working with programmers, or who's done some simple sort of building things themselves, who has enough of a technical understanding of sort of how things wire together that they can speak the language of both the designers and the programmers. I get it. I get it. And the more time you spend on, you know, some of that, you guys, you mentioned Bob earlier, jobs to be done, a lot of asking the whens. And if you haven't heard more about this, you can listen to the first time you're on my podcast where we talk a lot about jobs to be done. And some of that, you know, asking those questions, really understanding the problem too, also fits in what I'd consider a traditional product management role too, right? Yeah, that's interesting too. And that's, so that's something I didn't mention at all. And I'm glad you raised that because that's another piece of the puzzle. So how do we actually get to an understanding of what customers actually are trying to do? And that is an input to the shaping process. So in my case, I'm bundling those two 
So, you know, there's difference between people and roles and functions, you know, so there's different functions that have to get performed in the value chain. And then you can bundle those into people or you can unbundle them to different people. So you could have a researcher who talks to customers, interviews them and reverse engineers what they're trying to do in order to understand the demand side better, like you'd mentioned with jobs to be done and all of that. And then that person could collaborate with a shaper to come up with solutions or you can have a case like myself where I'm kind of bundling those together. I'm, I'm doing the customer research and then I'm taking what I learned from the customer research and directly trying to shape that into projects. I think that's a question of sort of who's around and, and the combinations of skills that they bring and you know whether you can get people to who can collaborate together or not. I think there's some latitude there, whether that's one person or it's separate people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can I can see that kind of matrix or weave of skill sets being important for filling out that that overall shaping role. It um, was kind of painful because so, you know I had to stop in order to ship shape up. I had to follow all of I had we had to eat our own dog food. You know, like we had to say no. We had to make trade offs. Like the book would never finish if we put everything into it. You know, and so. Like, but I would love if I was able to dedicate the time to like an expanded version of it or version two, or I don't know what, you know, I would love to spend more time on this question of what is actually the, the value chain of a product company? What are all the things that have to happen regardless of which person does which steps, you know, but this thing about gathering the raw inputs, doing the customer research shaping it, betting on it, like these things that sort of have to happen regardless of the title, because we get so stuck on titles and, and things like product manager or product ops or whatever it is like, but these are just names for people. And they're actually just different bundles of steps in the value chain. But if we could understand more from a cause and effect level of like what actually has to happen for work to transform from one phase to the next, then we can understand better sort of what the ground truth is about like what skills need to be there. And then everyone can work out for themselves sort of like how we combine those and distribute those steps among the people that we have. Yeah, I, I love that idea. That would that would make a very, that in and of itself could make a powerful book. So one thing I'm curious about at Basecamp, metrics. What do you guys measure? What metrics matter to you? That would be a better question for the people who are responsible for that. That's more Jason and David's wheelhouse. But I can tell you from what I see from the outside, from what I understand, everything that we measure is about survival and about health, and it's not about goals. So in all the years that I've been here, we've never had a number that we were trying to hit. We never had something that we were measuring that we were trying to reach. Rather, Jason and David have always been focused on cost. They've always been focused on the downside, not the upside. So if we keep our downside under control, and we do our best to do projects that match our best understanding of what people want and what we want for ourselves and what we think is valuable, then the upside can be open-ended. It's just like with betting. If we know that this feature that we're going to build is at most going to cost six weeks, and if we know that we can afford to spend six weeks based on what we have, then the worst thing that happens is we lose the six weeks. But the best thing that could happen, the sky's the limit, you know, maybe this new feature completely takes off and everybody who hears about it is like, oh man, like Basecamp is fantastic. You got to try this new thing that they have, right? Or it could just be that the customers who were complaining about it stop complaining. You know, there's, there's all kinds of different levels of upside, but we don't try and measure the upside. We don't try to anticipate the upside. We just control the downside 
and we do our best to do things that are exciting and seem valuable and match our best understanding of, of what people want. So, you know, you launch something, it's the dot calendar, it's the auto pay on the invoices, what have you. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do you measure the success of that? We actually don't. (laughs) And here's the thing. As far as I can see, the culture of measurement traces back to how the business is funded. If you have to answer to an investor, you are constantly going to be playing the measurement game because you have to figure out how to give them their money back, how to make them their money. You know, you got to hit a growth target. You got to hit this target. You got to hit that target because somebody put money in expecting money to come out. If you're not funded that way, you don't owe anybody anything and you just do your best. And that's a wonderful place to be where you know what it costs to live another day. You know what it takes to stay in the game and you keep your cost under control and you do your best to find something that's going to work. And if it grows, then that's awesome, you know, because that's wonderful if something works and takes off, but you don't have to have this constant pressure of like, how do we hit this target? How do we hit that target? Like, where do these targets come from? They come from, they they come from debt. I don't know if I entirely agree. I agree with the do your best. And I agree with, you know, artificial pressures, maybe from investment, but even when I'm, I'm building something for me and I look at it and it's like, I just spent this six weeks, right? I spent six weeks on a feature, you know, that I added to my product. I want to see like, does it have value for my customers, right? Are they getting value out of it or did I waste those six weeks? And it's not that you know, losing those six weeks is going to make or break my quarter or my year, like you put it, but it's, it's that, did I actually do something that, you know, made someone's life better who was using uh, my product, right? Yeah, from that angle. Okay, so I, I'm so used to having this sort of conversation about measurement that maybe my perspective was skewed a little bit with how I answered that. So we have a, and I kind of see it actually as my job to sort of constantly diagnose what's getting used and what's not, and how do people value the product and how do they not. And every time that we ship something, that becomes part of the story. So let's say we ship this new calendar feature, right? We don't have a a formal process of now we're going to go measure something and that's going to tell us like what we did. Because we, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't even know what to measure (laughs) to tell us what success means. Like designing the ruler in itself is a really hard problem to actually know what it means. However, because I'm regularly talking to customers and the conversation is including everything that they tried, everything that they used, what they didn't use, and how Basecamp works for them, before long, we are going to have an updated picture of how people are using the app and what they value that includes that new calendar thing that we shipped. So we are getting the feedback and we are getting the updated picture of what's getting used and what's not and what worked and what didn't. It's just not built into the loop of shape, build, and ship. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it would be better if it was. I honestly don't trust that because <laughs> here's the thing. Here's the thing. Like, so we heard that we, we came to the conclusion that customers wanted this calendar, let's say, right? And then we build it. Yep, yep. What should we measure? Like, what tells us that we succeeded? It's really hard to define that. Yeah, I think it is a challenge. But I mean, you, you can look at it and say, it's like, what's the engagement? I mean, like, do they use it? Do they use this feature, right? I mean, that's definitely an indicator. Uh, and how often do they use it? Do they use it once and quit, right? There, there's, there's indicators, I think, that you can get about, you know, did we build something that met the need of that customer? 
Yeah, but it, it doesn't tell me very much. Yeah. So, because it doesn't, it, let's say I, I see some numbers that tell me that people don't use it, right? I don't have any causality True. in that, in that story. And I can't act unless I have causality. So I, I actually need to talk to customers in such a way that I get the context around what they're doing in order to see the causality in order to act on it anyway. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, if you have that data, it gives you, it gives you a point to, you know, address or to look into, right? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, it's so expensive. Getting yeah, that, getting that data is expensive. Like whose time is that? That's yeah. going to take somebody's time to do that. And then if that data doesn't feel actionable and here's the other thing, we already shipped it. What are we going to do? Take it away? Like, you're basically not right. And if we're going to make another bet on it, we need to have way more than data. We need to have causality around it. So, okay. It, and it, it does happen by the way that that we look at engagement data. I actually custom built a whole analytics tool just for the purpose of looking at this type of data that you're talking about, right? But I do it when I have a question that I understand. So if a question arises like, hey, so does anybody use that calendar thing? I have a tool that I can go that's gonna give me an answer that I can understand in terms of just engagement numbers. The thing is that that's the beginning of a, of oh, absolutely. It's a, of a deeper research project, right? And yeah. because it's the beginning of a deeper research project, it means it's a time commitment. And because it's a time commitment, it means that like it needs to be tied to something that feels strategically important. And if we did it for every feature, we would be multiplying the cost of every development effort we ever do uh, by a substantial coefficient. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely not a big believer in lay. let's go and instrument everything because there's yeah. a cost associated with that. Yeah. Uh, and the idea of instrumenting each feature then fits into your six weeks and now all of a sudden you're cutting time out of it, totally. the cycle. So and I, the time to do the analysis and to think about it and everything. But, but I, if I, in an ad hoc way, absolutely. Just not in a routinized way. Yeah, yeah. I, I completely get it. I mean, you definitely, it's better to have the data and have it available for you to make decisions on, I think. And you use that as you need to use that. But I think we could spend another 45 minutes talking about Oh, yeah, that's a whole thing in itself. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> There's a tool out there somewhere that just captured data automatically for you. I won't get into all of that. But yeah. so wrapping up for today, before we have our, our session number three, which right. we're just uh, you know, last time you talked about your, your favorite non-tech product is the Apple Pencil, you, you know, or your favorite tech product was the mm. Apple Pencil. You have a favorite new tech product or a favorite non-tech product? Uh, I'll just go with, um, uh, you know, like the most recent one. I just did a really big trip across the whole of Russia from Moscow in the, in the West over to Vladivostok in the East on the Trans-Siberian Railway. And I was with a big group of friends and I needed a piece of luggage that I could, you know, carry through train stations and maybe like a long wandering, getting lost through town to get from point A to point B. But I also needed something that I could throw around easily. So I needed sort of something like a backpack, but with the right capacity and all that. Anyway, I ended up getting this duffel bag from REI. They have this thing called the big hall duffel bag. And yeah. it's an, it's a 90 liter bag. It's like huge. I mean, I, I'm tall, so I can, I can carry something big like that. And it's just a big empty compartment and it's got backpack straps on the back, but the backpack straps kind of hide and tuck away. So it's easy to check and throw on the flight. And I just loved this bag. It just like put up with everything. It worked perfectly and it, it was just totally simple and 
So that's, I, I would say that this big haul uh, 90 liter duffel bag from REI is my, was my most recent favorite non-tech purchase. Awesome. Well, thanks, Ryan. I know we've (laughs) gone along today, but uh, it's always a blast talking to you. This conversation was enthralling. We'll have to meet up again in person sometime soon. Hey, I really enjoyed it. I'd love to do that. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks.